David. What's up, man? This is episode six. This is episode six. Did you think we would get this far? <laughs> um, frankly, yes. I, but I didn't think anybody would care. Yeah, we've got like a, tens of listeners by now. <laughs> yes, at least tens of listeners are are are, are, are following us, which is awesome. <laughs> I did not expect that at all, which has yeah. been great. And that's that's actually one piece of follow up that I wanted to bring up from the last couple of episodes is that I, I've gotten a lot of great feedback from people that that they're enjoying the show. We even have a iTunes review. Yeah, that was surprising uh, because I have no idea who it is. Did you plant that seed? I have no idea did you, either. Did you plant that review? No, no. And that's actually really good. It's something that I wanted to talk about a little bit. Okay. Yeah. The totally. thing that he brought up. It's mm-hmm. like Texas Spidey Man. I don't remember exactly what it was. I should have looked that up beforehand. But he basically said that uh, like the campiness of the Marvel movies sort of mirrors the campiness of the of the '90s Batman movies after after the '89 Batman, which is really interesting. Like, is that the natural progression of comic book movies? That they always move from kind of gritty and dark to campy? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, although the, the Marvel movies, I don't think, were ever all that dark. No, but they were certainly more serious than they are now. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Thor, that was... Thor being the perfect example. Right, where Thor 1 was an actual story about him being a hero on his quest to movie 3, where it's unclear what the movie was about. No, no, that's good. That's good. Um, I will say that, like, I, as far as the podcast is concerned, I have felt very much like, uh, and I think you agree with this, is that whether or not we have a lot of listeners, whether or not we have a lot of success is not really why we're doing this. We're kind of doing it for a lot of fun. And it's just kind of been a, a pleasant surprise that people have found actual quality in, in listening and actual enjoyment, which has been, I think, a pleasant surprise. Yeah, yeah. My goal is just to have a, a good conversation with a good friend Yeah. Uh, about things that I like. Totally, totally. Um, uh, speaking of which, from, from our last episode, do you have any direct follow-up from that episode? So, we are not in our current or in our regular recording studios, are we? <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> we, we actually have normally recorded our show across the continent. Yeah. You from Berkeley <laughs> and me from Toronto. Yeah, where we're, 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 we're in America's heartland. <laughs> we are in Grand Cato, Louisiana. We are both overlapping in the same place. Grand Coteau, Louisiana. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so here we are. We're here because we we are gathering for a formation conference. So all Jesuits who are preparing for priesthood and active ministry as Jesuits um, are gathered here in Louisiana. And we've been here for a couple of days already. Um, and it's been a lot of fun. And so I think this is kind of a, a pleasant surprise and a good opportunity for us to record as close to a live episode as possible. Yeah, so this is... This is new territory for us. We're not only are we in the same time zone, but we're in the same building. We are in the same building. We are in the same building. We're not in the same. We're not in the same room. <laughs> we're not. We're not. Uh, I think for for good reason. I think uh, recording happens a lot better between two people if they're not in the same room. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to be giving visual cues that are not going to translate to the podcast. So I was kind of thinking we could. Talk a little bit about our Christmas break, you know, the things, the travels we've been doing, uh-huh. and then some technology issues that I know has been on your mind. So I think that'll be a fun, a fun little conversation. But before that, certainly with follow-up from the last episode, you know, we talked a lot about stress. Mm-hmm. And for me, at least, it's been incredible. As soon as you turn in your last thing, you just feel the weight lifted off your shoulders. 
Yeah, totally. And all of a sudden, you're you're able to breathe again. Did you have a similar experience? Yeah, I did. Um, I think uh, there was there was some some curiosity about like what was causing me the most stress this semester, and I I had an opportunity to reflect a little bit upon like what is it about the work that I was doing that was causing me so much stress. And there was a lot of assignments that I had to do, and some of them caused me more stress than others, um, and for different reasons. Um, and I think I was talking to my spiritual director about this, and I, I realized that like the the thing that caused me the most stress this semester was a class that I wasn't really all that clear as to what the expectations were for the final project. And in the unknowing of the expectations, I felt like there was a spike in the stress because the lack of clarity pushed more onto my shoulders because it was no longer just achieve the task that has been asked of me, but it was try to decipher the unclear instructions so as to maybe guess as to what is expected of me and then try to achieve that as the best way possible. And so there was sort of compounding layers of stress upon me because I didn't really feel helped along the way uh, to have clarity of expectation. Um, and that gave me the most anxiety. And so when that paper was turned in, um, I've kind of washed my hands of the whole class and was able to just <laughs> move on and say, you know what? Yeah. This wasn't the best situation. This wasn't the best uh, experience and it's over and I don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. You know, that was a, a constant struggle of mine when I was teaching high school because you really need to be as clear as possible. And I didn't always do that very well because you do want your students to be able to do a certain amount of rational thinking and making their own conclusions. But if you're not giving them enough guidance, they're not going to be able to do that. Right. And then it just compounds the stress because then not only are we executing the task offered, but then we're also become like creators of the assignment and interpreters of the assignment. And as a student, I don't need to be the creator and the interpreter. I just need to be the executor. Right. right. And so I think it's just a sign of maybe poor pedagogy or just a lack of clarity of instruction. Yeah. And it makes it makes me it made me really frustrated, I think, over the course of the semester. But no, yeah. going back to your point, once that was turned in, I was able to let go. Although on some level well, there hold was on. I wanna I wanna stay with, I wanna stay with that really quick. Okay. Do you think that um, so having had the experience of going to school, becoming a high school teacher, now going back to school, and being able to see the differences in pedagogy between the three, with you right there in the middle, do you think that's going to influence the way that you, if you do, end up going back to a school? Oh, absolutely. The way that you teach? Oh, absolutely. Um, the the way in which, so I I have some clear examples in my mind uh, of experiences this semester with some of my classes of thinking to myself, you know, what teacher X is doing right now is something that I did as a teacher and yeah. I, I know what they're doing. And like for, there was a, there was a moment where I was thinking to myself, what this teacher is doing right now is coming out of a place of a lack of preparedness because I've done this too. Um, I've, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've pulled this kind of, um, you know, off the cuff kind of, uh, spontaneous assignments or, activities that seem like a good idea in the moment, but they're really coming out of a place of me not having prepared well for the lecture as a teacher. And I noticed that in some of my classes and being able to see behind the curtain a little bit, um, made me have a little bit of mercy for the teacher, but also kind of like regret for how I had been as a teacher to where looking ahead, yeah. if I go back to teach, it's like, okay, these things are very evident to the students. Uh, and it sucks being a student on the receiving end of a certain lack of preparedness or lack of clarity of instruction to where I feel like I can maybe yeah. pay, it, pay it forward to future generations of my students, uh, maybe taking yep. lessons as a student now, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had the same reflection on some of my classes that I've kind of struggled with a little bit for this for the exact same reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and really recognizing, ooh, I did that. <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, I'm curious to hear from you. What um what was your favorite class this semester? So I've been taking. I don't remember if I've mentioned it before, but I took this class called Fifty Objects in Christianity. It's sort of a church history through the lens of art history. Uh huh. And we looked at so objects like bread, you know, something very important to the early church. And that's how, how that's how we began. Okay. Um, and the professor did a really good job of bringing in interesting objects that normally you wouldn't associate with really anything. You know, it could be uh, we had one guest lecturer bring in two lamps that this particular person used, and so sort of using that as the focal point to then talk about everything else that was surrounding those objects. Mm-hmm. I found that to be very very fascinating, and interested in art anyways. So that helped me sort of stay focused and stay engaged in that class. It was great. Was this a class that you had to paint for your final? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a sort of a classical image of Our Lady of Sorrows with the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Okay. You know, we always see Mary holding in the, and, you know, the famous Pieta, holding the body of Jesus after the crucifixion. But right. I wanted to look at the moment right after that. Right. She's just sort of in shock. Later sundown. Holy crap, what has just happened? Right, 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 right. No, yeah, that's awesome. And that was your, that was your final project? Yeah, yeah, it was cool to be able to do that. You know, mm-hmm. you don't often get that opportunity. And if when you do, it's really difficult for me to even to talk to people about that because it's like, oh, you got to do a crayon coloring project for grad school. Cool. It's like, well, it's really not that, but okay. Well, yeah, but also, you know, and I think this is something that we could talk more at length about at a, in a different episode, but moving moving artistic production to the same level of importance and rigor as essay writing, I think I think is, is sort of a, it's a refocusing or a paradigm shift in saying art is not something just ancillary to our life as Christians or to our life as priests, but it is something essential and it's a medium through which we can communicate truth and goodness um, and not like, yeah, just definitely. like, just like essay writing. Yeah, and and yeah. perhaps, perhaps unfortunately there's a, there's a bias against artwork as a medium of communication of truth. Yeah. Well, we've been burned. There's just a lot of bad art out there and even religious art. It's all very sort of kitsch and not good. Yeah, yeah, fair and enough. So, and that's then that's my that's my drive. That's my desire is to is to go beyond that and to make something that's actually good. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. No, that's cool. Yeah, we can talk about that at a, at a later yeah. time. This semester, I I took a class which I really loved. Uh, at the end of the day, so since I'm in Canada, there is a long tradition of referencing um, the missionaries to what was called New France. Uh, so. Canada and upstate New York, that area. And there were some missionaries from old France. So Isaac Jogues, Jean de Brebeuf, these guys and their companions. Um, They're called the North American Martyrs or the Canadian Martyrs. And Toronto is two hours away from where these guys were killed. And there is a shrine there that we run, the Jesuits run. And uh, the director of the shrine, where their relics are and where uh, John Paul II made a visitation there when he came to Toronto for World Youth Day. You know, half the skull of Brebeuf is there. The director of the shrine... Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the director of the shrine was offering a course at my school, basically teaching his dissertation, huh. what was called the Jesuit Relations, which I had never heard of before. Are you familiar with these? No. The Jesuit Relations is... It's the 17-volume collection of all of the correspondence of the French missionaries back to old France. Hmm. Wow. All of their letters. It's incredible because this collection of letters in like 17 volumes is actually, along with being great information and texts for religious history of like 
missionary activity in the 17th and 18th centuries, it's actually the oldest living text for the history of Canada. So wow. from even a secular standpoint, this is the earliest document that you have available to understand what Canada was like during the time of the missionaries and the time of the colonizers. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just a really fascinating you know, set of texts. And so what we were doing is, it was a history class. And so we were looking at the rhetorical dimensions of these letters and trying to understand what the missionaries were doing in these letters. And what was beautiful about it is that we got to read, you know, the firsthand accounts of their imprisonment, the firsthand accounts of their tortures, uh, the first and secondhand accounts of their martyrdoms and understanding their witness to the faith as lived out in this mission field. And as it's written and then sent back to old France as a means of catechizing and edifying the faithful back in old France. Hmm, that's incredible. Oh, and it was beautiful. We got to go and engage the texts themselves. I mean, they were gruesome. There's some gruesome martyrdom accounts that I, yeah. I really had a hard time reading them, frankly. Like, I, my stomach would turn as I was reading some of these things. But it was beautiful because one of the lessons taken away from the martyrdom accounts is that it's very clear that these men saw themselves as appropriating the mission of Christ to bring the good news to those who had not yet heard the gospel, but by means not just of preaching, but by means of also dying. And you yeah. see it all in their letters that the, the view of martyrdom is this understanding of the fullness of sort of Christian witness, that these guys saw their sufferings as conjoined to the sufferings of Christ. And that's so evident in their texts. Like for them, it's not this sort of unjust murder that's happening, but for them, it's sort of like the blossoming of their full gift of themselves um, out of love for the Huron that they're missioning, that they're ministering to in New France. I don't know. I thought it was really fascinating, and I really enjoyed, enjoyed yeah. the class. Yeah, that's a, precisely what my class was about, looking at, like, those journals would have been an object to look at Christianity in the New World. Oh, okay. That's I awesome. see. Yeah, it was awesome. I really encourage you to read some of the stuff. Um, it's gruesome. Yeah. It's really gruesome, but it's really powerful, uh, a powerful witness. You know, one, one small detail that I'll maybe share with you, which I thought was really cool. It showed up in my, my um, final paper. So we were asked to do an analysis of some of the martyrdom accounts, sort of like a rhetorical analysis. And so I was doing one on the imprisonment of Isaac Job by the Iroquois. And he survived the imprisonment, and he recounted what the experience was like of his torture. And our teacher, he made it very clear that since these letters were written and then redacted by superiors and then sent across the ocean, they went through... And, you know, certain layers of revision. And if anything ends up in the final draft, it's important. And if there is any object mentioned in the letters, it was an important object to the missionaries because they couldn't take very much. And they labored to mention them as important uh, in their writings. And so I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, Isaac Jug talks about three main objects that he carried with him when he was imprisoned by the Iroquois. And the first was the letter to the Hebrews uh, as a little book. Mm -hmm. The second was a devotional holy card of St. Bruno. And the last one was a little crucifix, a little cross that he made out of wood. Mm -hmm. And I started to pray with that and to think about that a lot. And what came out of my reflection that I put in my paper was the three objects that he was carrying were indicative of how he understood what his role was in New France. Because, for one, he carried the cross with him. And so he understood that he was on the way to the cross, carrying the cross with him wherever he went. That's one. But then the second thing was St. Bruno is the founder of the Carthusians. And the motto of the Carthusians mm -hmm. is that the cross stands still while the world turns. And so yep. 
the image that he would meditate upon was the image of a founder of a religious order that put the cross as the center of his life. And then lastly, the letter to the Hebrews, where uh, the author to the Hebrews talks extensively about Christ as the high priest offering himself as sacrifice. So yep. these three objects are carried by the man who is currently being tortured for the sake of the gospel, being racked upon mm. the cross to make an offering of himself yeah. for the salvation of the Huron. Uh, and all of that is localized in these three objects as you reflect on them and meditate upon them, that Jog is making a commentary here about how these little sacramentals say something about the reality of what he's experiencing himself as he's carrying his cross to his own death. Mm. That's really cool. You know, the thing that I immediately thought of when you mentioned he carried the letter of the, to the Hebrews, what's the very first line in that letter? I don't know. That God has revealed himself in many ways throughout history, mm. in partial ways. And for that to be sort of the mindset of a missionary, I think is incredibly important. Mm. To say that God is he God is here, God is working in the world. Yeah. But we bring the fullness of that understanding. Yeah, totally, totally. Which is love, yeah. So it's funny because like that class gave me no stress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just because I was so enlivened cool. by I was so enlivened by the material and so so fed by it that stress was not even operative. Were you able to keep up with the readings? I was, and it was wonderful. Nice. We did a lot of reading and it was really great. It was very good. I ended up writing for, it was a 10 page paper. I ended up writing 26 pages because, yeah, it was, it it was a little much. Yeah. Uh, What have you done since the semester ended? Well, I think you and I are in the same situation, something new for us and that we get to visit our families for Christmas, like for Christmas day. Yeah. This is my first Christmas. Yeah. I had my second Christmas with my family. Mm -hmm. Uh, How did that go for you? It was it was Being good. Able to do that for the first time. Yeah, uh, since I've been a Jesuit, that was my first time at home for Christmas, and I was very happy to be home uh, with my parents, with my grandfather, with both my brothers, their wives, and their kids, and some family yeah. friends that came it's over as house. well. It was a full house, you know, two dogs in the house. Every everything was, you know, it was just a ruckus. Uh, which at times I must admit, in my weakness, I would get impatient and I would get frustrated and I would. <laughs> feel very annoyed um, because it's such it's so out of the rhythm of my normal day-to-day life. And I think there's something of transition costs that happens to me whenever I go home is that I have to get out of my routine, which is always difficult for me. Uh, and so Christmas was chaotic. I mean, it was absolutely chaotic. There was chaos everywhere because there was all these kids and dogs and people. And But in that, there was a certain joy that we all got to be together for Christmas. Um, yeah. You know, and waking up the next morning, and that was really beautiful. Uh, to do the gifts on, on Christmas Day. It did it did raise some questions for me, though. Uh, this is the first time that I was, well, spoiler alert, that I put the gifts under the tree uh, <laughs> because everyone else was tending to the kids or going to bed or something. And so I stayed up to, to put the gifts under the tree. And what I found... <laughs> What I found you kind of wasn't Santa. Well, I leave that open to the audience to decide. Um, <laughs> what, what I found kind of annoying and frustrating was, or just curious, and I just not really ever entertained this very much, was I started really struggling a little bit with the question of the the Santa myth and and all of that stuff, the sort of secular Christmas. I really was confounded by like how have, how have my parents kept this up for so long? Like, you know, when I was a kid, like how did they do this year in and yet year out? Because I'm having a hard time feeling motivated to enjoy Christmas in the way that yeah. the world celebrates Christmas. I just find it kind of vapid. Mm. 
uh, like all the holiday music, I just don't understand it that we just sort of for for weeks, for a few weeks at the end of the year, we start singing about reindeer and singing about uh, this mythical <laughs> creature and and snow when it doesn't even snow in Texas. And like, I just yeah. find it really kind of odd. And so I was feeling that a little bit because I was like, okay, I'm putting up pretenses for the sake of the children. And I get that. And that's important. But well, what do you think? So I saw this shirt at a shop um, a couple of, well, last week, I guess, that was like a stylized face of Santa. Mm-hmm. And it said, I believe. Oh my God. And it's like, I looked at that. I took a picture of it. Uh, I looked at that and I thought, this is ridiculous <laughs> because we're so much more willing to, to publicly state our belief in Santa Claus over our belief in Jesus Christ Yeah. or God. Yeah. Like what is, what is happening here? <laughs> no, totally. Totally. It's so twisted. Well, I was having this conversation with a few guys here at the at the formation gathering. I I kind of wish that like you know let let the secular holiday kind of become its own thing because we we don't have any religious connotation to it really at all in our culture. Yeah. And I almost want to just like I almost want to throw my hands in the air and say like okay let's stop fighting this war and let let the secular thing just be its own thing and then let us just return to our fundamentals and celebrate Christmas as we wish uh, and as we know it is. Yeah, as well. there so, are cult- cultural pr- practices that we've got that we don't do that we could do. Like what? You know, for example, the season of Christmas. We're still in Christmas. Right. Right. As we're recording so we this, we're a few days it as Christmas. Well, so as we're recording this, we're a few days after after Christmas. Yeah. Um, I guess my point is that like, is, is, is the, and I know that the fight is worth it, but it's like, is it a losing battle to keep fighting the, the, the culture war of, um, you know, this war on Christmas or the materialism and everything? Is it better to just say, you know what, let well, the culture have its thing. And yeah, it's a losing battle to try to fight on their terms. Like we can't make, we can't. We can't. We're going to lose that fight if we try to secularize the religious aspect of it to make it more appealing to more people. Uh huh. It's like we've got to. We can't play their game in that sense. You know, we've sure. got to be. We've got to be us. Right. You know, be genuine. Right. Yeah. I think one thing that I have found particularly frustrating though is like, how how is it that everyone is just seemingly okay with pretend all of a sudden? Like, what is there any other example where we do this, where we just believe in false things? just because, because it's fun to do. And we like um, commemorate culturally just fantasy. I don't know. I just, I just find it really odd. As I'm, as I'm becoming more an adult, I just find myself really confused. And an adult who doesn't have kids, right? Because I understand that there are adults yeah. who continue the mythology because they have kids. And there's a certain level of nostalgia, I think, with Christmas that what we're really commemorating is yeah. like fam- a sense of family or a sense of like warmth and joy and comfort. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but myth is kind of one of my favorite topics. And for a lot of people, and this is the kind of, I think, the fascinating thing that you're getting at here. For a lot of people, they when they hear the words myth or fairy tale or, you know, whatever, what have you, folktale, they just think of silly stories that don't mean anything. Whereas mythology gets at a deep truth of a people, of a culture. And so I think the disconnect for, for this particular one is that it doesn't really do that. Mm. It's a fabricated myth for consumerism. Hmm. You know what I mean? Right. 
they've sort of stripped away all of the actual myth mythological elements to it and we're left with this super sleek this is exactly what it's going to do and it's going to offend as let you know as few people as it can because it's all about getting things getting presents uh -huh. and feeling good about yourself sure <laughs> although i will say like there for a lot of people it seems when you ask them why do they love the the, the season they they often think about family time they think about um yeah which you know, is the, a good thing you know the warmth of sitting in the, in the in a couch and you know watching the same christmas movie again that you saw as a kid and i think nostalgia is a big part of it man like we listen to the same music and the same movies and everything. It's all nostalgia. And it's like, is nostalgia the same thing as memory? And when we think about like celebrating Christmas as Christians, we are commemorating, like we are remembering the birth of Christ. Yeah. We're not just yeah. longing for days of our youth or something or sort of like, because yeah. there's something in nostalgia that is sad. And we're not just remembering it. We're making it real again. Exactly. Right. And like nostalgia has an aspect that is sad. Right? There's a sadness to nostalgia where it's like bygone days that I you hope to. I long for those days. I long yeah. for those days. As opposed to the incarnation is a reality that we remember and that we participate in every year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's an ongoing thing. Right. And that distinction in memory and that distinction in participation uh, with what we remember, I think is sort of like the nexus point of divergence between maybe secular Christmas and the religious holiday. Because from a Catholic point of view, yeah. at least, we don't remember so as to long for the past. We remember so as to participate in the present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How was Christmas yeah, for you? Were you, uh, were you anywhere special? <laughs> well, David, um, so I have a problem. Do you remember when we talked about the witness factor? I do. I do. <laughs> I think I think we were talking about uh, the iPhone a few episodes ago, and the witness factor came yeah. up. Yeah, how it sort of looks, even though it might be a better device, and, you know, in the long run, it's less expensive, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, But it yeah. just looks bad. It just looks lav lavish, or, yeah. Yeah. Well... So, what did you do? Even, even after that conversation, I did something. <laughs> so you got to visit your whole family in Houston, I presume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your parents, your grandparents, um, everybody was there. My family lives all over. My uh -huh. sister's in Tennessee. My younger brother and younger sister still live in Texas. My dad is in Texas, although in different three different parts. My youngest brother's in the Marine Corps, so he's traveling around. He's currently stationed in Japan. Oh, cool. My older brother and his wife have been living in Hawaii for the last oh. 10 years or so. I don't know exactly how long. Nice. And I've never been able to visit them. It's always been something that I wanted to do. And now that I'm on the West Coast, it was a little bit easier, a little bit less expensive to make that trip. So I was given permission to have my Christmas family vacation with my brother and his wife in Hawaii. Ooh. And my youngest brother, who's in Japan, was able to get time off to come down as well. So we had a really nice little family reunion with three of the six kids together. Nice. The three that really don't get to see each other very often. It was it was wonderful, but it was in freaking Hawaii. <laughs> so how uh -huh. do you tell that to people who expect you to be, you know, this guy with a vow of poverty? To the extent where at this formation gathering, I've really been hesitant to even mention the fact that I was just in Hawaii. Even Hawaii. though the time shift has really been hard on me, <laughs> uh, the traveling back sure. to, the, to Central Time. 
So okay, so because of because of the witness factor, because it's something that seems extravagant, and you've got to explain, oh no, you know, it's my family that I haven't seen in a long time, blah blah blah. And even then, they're like, oh well, I wish I could have gone to Hawaii. It's like, well, okay. Does it seem extravagant? I maybe maybe I this is more of an indictment of me. I just I have a hard time understanding why it seems even extravagant because I mean, you didn't fly internationally, right? I mean, <laughs> it's true. You weren't going to another country. It was, yeah, part of the U.S. I mean, like, would you uh, would you have felt so bad if you were flying to Nevada? No. Nope. <laughs> I mean, I get it, right? Hawaii is seeming it's you know it's it's a paradise of sorts. Um, yeah. But it was so so. I guess your your concern is that truthfully, it wasn't a very expensive flight because you were already living in California. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. in spite of that, it might look like you took a very yeah. luxurious vacation over the holidays. Yeah. And I wasn't. I wasn't staying in any resorts, you know, I was living, I was sleeping on my brother's couch at his house. Well, then why don't you take this moment to clear the air? <laughs> what do you mean? Just well, to tell everybody what happened? Yeah, well, tell everyone that even though it may seem you, you want, <laughs> you want to set the record straight that... <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it, it wasn't any sort of, like opulent vacation time it was really a family visit just mm -hmm. like any other right and it had the same struggles just as any other right actually one of the really cool parts the first two nights that i was there with my younger brother he got these little rooms on the marine base mm -hmm. which were not good but the location was phenomenal nice the the whole base is on a little like a peninsula uh, and so we're, we were right on the water we had to share the bathroom with everybody in the complex but anyway yeah no, that sounds awesome. The cool thing about that was we had to drive over a landing strip to get to these rooms. Wow. And so I just really enjoyed having to, being able to do that. It was really cool. So I'll maybe set your mind at ease and maybe just challenge that you're being a maybe a little little scrupulous or a little overly concerned about the witness factor because in this case it doesn't seem it doesn't strike me immediately as an, a luxurious expense or even as even like a, a very lavish thing to be concerned about. Kind of like with the iPhone X, that may seem like something that is luxurious um just because there are other options with the iphone that uh are not a thousand dollars plus for for a phone uh in this case what were your options it's like well my desire is to go see my family and my family that i have not seen in very very long lives in hawaii just that's where they are uh so that's yeah i don't know i think that yeah. you're i think that you're good but i get it i mean i get that the, the witness factor is always something that um, yeah, I haven't even posted pictures of it on social media. Dude, just do it, reason. man. Like, just eh. do it. Just, <laughs> just do it. Because I think that the witness factor can also <laughs> can also lead to scruples where we yeah. where we can become overly obsessed with how we are perceived. Now there is value in that. Uh, we do need to think about how it is that we come off. Granted, but like I'll give you an analogy. Like for me, I remember how last time we talked a lot about personality types and like conflict resolution yeah. all that yeah. stuff. So I. Mm -hmm. I struggle a lot because I come off as very abrasive and I, and I come off as very forceful and I come off as very opinionated, et cetera, et cetera. And on some yeah. level, I need to be aware of that. And I need to be conscious of, do you do that? Uh, maybe, uh, I need to be aware <laughs> of those things, uh, and work to, you know, mitigate the offense or mitigate sort of the, the, the abrasiveness. But at the same time, I'm not going to live my whole life thinking about how, I, how other people see me. Because it's exhausting. Yeah. Like, it's so exhausting. Yeah. And after a while, it's like, look, if you have a problem with me, I'm, I'm going to try my best to minimize the offense. But talk to me because and let me know. Yeah, no, that's a good point. 
I think you're in the clear to post those pictures, man. Let me look at this from a different angle for okay. the both of us. Here's something that I've been wanting to talk to you about. So we lead a pretty particular life uh, as yeah. Jesuits. Yeah, we do. We do. Part of that is going to Mass every day. This is true. And, es and especially around Christmas time, you know, there's a lot of extra things that, that we could be doing. How did you manage that? Because uh, I didn't do it very well. Oh, like going to Mass every day? Yeah. Um, well, I came up with a solution to the problem. Whenever I am at home, it is... And maybe I'd be curious to hear from married couples uh, and how this plays out for them. Like when they go visit their in-laws, uh, for example, you know, like if a married couple with with kids travels across the country to spend Christmas with the in-laws, uh, how that affects yeah. their their life and their routine. Um, yeah, routines are going to be thrown off. Yeah. Uh, and I'd be curious to hear from them how they accommodate that. Now with me, like my routines as a religious, I, you know, wake up every morning and I spend some time in prayer. Um, every day I go to mass. Um, every day I spend time with my religious community um, and have dinner. So whenever I go to visit my family, some of those things are going to be naturally thrown off because I don't have my community to uh, have dinner with. I don't have mass offered in the house. I don't live in a house that has a chapel, so I can't go to Mass every day. And also, prayer sucks because I am in a house where there's very little space for quiet um, and there's a yeah. lot of distractions. So yeah. my solution is, in the past, what I've tried to do is like, okay, I'm going to be very disciplined and find a Mass time that I'm going to stick to. Uh, and that works, but I realize that the actual solution to my problem is to wake up before everyone else. Mm. And to just say, look, this is important to me. So I'm going to make the sacrifice and wake up at 6 a.m. every day. And, and this is what I did this week. I woke up at 6 a.m. every day, yeah. went to a 7 a.m. mass somewhere, uh, and then spent some time in prayer at the church, and then went to a Starbucks and did some spiritual reading, uh, did some uh, some work for school, uh, getting ready for the new semester. And then by the time I got home, people were starting to wake up. Uh, yeah, and then I could be... That's a good idea. And then I could just be fully present uh, to my family the rest of the day and not have any scruples about like, oh, shoot, they want to go to the mall, but I have to go to the 5.30 p.m. mass. Uh, how am I going to pull yeah. that off? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, no, that's that's good. I should do that. I suck at waking up in the morning, though. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> you want a piece of advice on that? I have a little life, yes. pro, tip, life pro tip on yep. that. Um, when I was in college, uh, the pastor um, of the, the Newman Center – he said, the wisdom of the monk is that if you want to wake up early, the trick is to go to bed early. And as simple as that sounds, um, I think it, it, there's a certain kernel of truth uh, of hidden in yeah. there, which is we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to burn the candle at both ends. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you have to give if you want to wake up early. So what's yeah. gonna give? And if it's not your night, then you're not gonna you're not gonna pull it off. So you have to start going to bed yeah. earlier. Mm -hmm. So how yeah. was your how was your religious commitment uh, in Hawaii? Well, mine was a little bit more difficult just because I didn't have easy access to transportation, and the closest church was just outside of walking distance. It would have been like an hour each way. Oh man. Um, yeah. So it was it was difficult for me to to do that. You know, my, my brother doesn't have any kids, so it was a little bit easier to have some quiet time in the mornings. Uh -huh. So I was able to, to give myself some of that. Um, and I did a fair amount of spiritual reading. I've got this book that I've been trying to finish. 
So I've been pretty good about that. But yeah, just sort of the, the regular routine, I guess. I did miss my community. I love my family, but I really did miss my, my community. Yeah, no, I'm sensitive to that too. Yeah, totally. That's okay. I mean, like, I mean, not going to mass every day is unfortunate, yeah. but it's also not, you're not obligated to do so. Yeah. Right yeah, now yeah. as a seminarian, um, at least within our institute, mm-hmm. like that's not a requirement. So insofar as you can, you know. Yeah. So here's a funny story called, I hate going to the drugstore to pick up, you know, the little toothpaste and deodorant, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Kind of things toiletries i discovered that amazon has a thing called subscriptions what yeah explain i set up a subscription for deodorant to be delivered to my door every six months okay and i'm gonna set it up for all those other things too toothpaste and so i don't have to go to the pharmacy every couple of months oh my goodness that's awesome how is that possible that we (laughs) live in such a world that i don't have to go buy my own toothpaste Yeah, I'm totally fine with this. <laughs> I'm perfectly okay with the idea of having someone else send me my deodorant. <laughs> yeah, where's the end of this technology though? How do you how do you improve from this? Like that's um, already the best thing ever. Well, this kind of gets to the topic that I wanted to talk to you about. Oh, it is. Uh, yesterday in one of our conferences, we were talking about reconciliation, not the sacrament of reconciliation, uh-huh. but just reconciliation among different relationships. Uh, so reconciliation yeah. to God, reconciliation among people, and reconciliation of people to creation um, as yeah. sort of a threefold uh, sort of matrix for our reflection and discernment about our future ministries and, and our priorities, um, which is good. And I think it's a good conversation to think about how can we be ministers of reconciliation. And that's really great. And I think there was a lot of really wonderful suggestions. You know, what does it mean to be reconciled to God, reconciled to the church, reconciled to creation? Now, one of the things that was not mentioned in the conversation that I wanted to bring up is in reading the signs of the times in our day and age, and I recognize that I'm I'm being a little hypocritical in saying this, but maybe this is important for me to say just because I need to challenge myself in this. In reading the signs of the times, I think one of the ways in which we need to be ministers of reconciliation is being prophets or advocates for reconciliation with reality. And the reason I say that is because... We were doing a meditation on the incarnation, and I thought to myself, you know, the incarnation, which we just celebrated in Christmas, is an embodied reality, and it hits on the point that Christianity is a religion of the incarnation, of being embodied things, and not just mental beings, or not just spiritual beings, but being enfleshed beings, and that's a cornerstone of our faith, and it's really important, and I think in our day and age, and reading the signs of the times. I think that we're moving in a direction where I am becoming increasingly afraid of virtual reality. What do you mean by virtual reality? So when I say virtual reality, I obviously do mean like VR headsets and how gaming is moving in a direction of altered reality or virtual reality where you are immersing yourself, not physically, mind you, but immersing yourself Mm -hmm. psychically or or mentally into a universe or a world where you even become sensitive with your body in our sort of real world uh, to things that are around you. So you start sweating because you're nervous because of something that's happening in the virtual reality or whatever, right? Um, That's one example of virtual reality. But then I would even say under this umbrella of VR, I would also include social media. I would also include Mm. e-commerce like Amazon. I would include all kind of digital conversation. 
you would include also, you know, the overdependence or the um, addiction to digital devices. And this is where I consider mm-hmm. myself a little bit hypocritical because, you know, I live with my watch, I live with my phone, I live with my iPad pretty much all day, every day. Yeah. So, but I become increasingly concerned about this because if we're called to be reconcilers after meditating upon the incarnation and being Christian reconcilers, how are we challenging the world to be reconciled back to reality and not just virtual reality, but actual reality? Yeah. Because the more we move away from physical reality, then I think that we're becoming less and less human. Yeah. There's a great irony in how we are a culture that is overly materialistic. We love material things. However, the trajectory of virtual reality is one that's pulling us away from material reality. So there's this like natural paradox that's that's occurring here where we are overly materialistic and also anti-materialistic. We want things Mm -hmm. and we want those things to help us escape from things. Yeah. And there's something interesting there. The last point I would say is this has also been on my mind because I just finished a novel that I really enjoyed, uh, which is called Ready Player One. And it was awesome, and the movie's coming out, uh, and I really recommend the book. It's a lot of fun, but it's all about living in virtual reality. And ha- and there's many moments yeah. in the story where the protagonist says his real life is the life he lives in virtual reality. That his mm. life outside of being connected to what's called the Oasis uh, is not his real life. You know, he goes to school mm. in the Oasis. He has a whole personality and relationships within the Oasis that he doesn't have in the real world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So... Yeah, that's fascinating. This is kind of something that I wanted to bring up to you because it's sort of hit me hard recently as something that I have become conscious of of myself. I got into a fight with some friends and instead of being man enough to confront them and say, I'm sorry in in person, I just chose to text them and say, hey, uh, I'm sorry for being a jerk. And I was like, man, yeah, I can't approach them in a physical way. I have to use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easier. Right, it's easier and it's like safer because I don't have to have the material connection. Yeah, you don't have to see them. I think it's interesting, you know, when we were talking about, this kind of hits on the conversation we had last time with personal uh, personality, you know, when we were talking about being mean to each other. Uh-huh. So like being mean on the internet is very different from being mean in person. Right. Because if, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm ugly to you in person, well, I'm going to feel bad about it then and there. Whereas I can say nasty things on the internet all day and not feel bad about it because I'm not really dealing with real people. I'm dealing right. with internet people. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think there is sort of a layer of separation there when you're dealing with things over, over technology, over the internet. But is the solution just to get rid of technology? Like, should we just abandon our e-lives? No, I, I don't think so. I guess I'm just... My concern is coming from the point of view of the trajectory is moving in the direction of virtual reality being the norm. Yeah. yeah. And, and I realize that when I say virtual reality, I mean degrees of virtual reality, right? Like sure. the, the, the fact that most sure. of my relationships are mediated through uh, digital communication uh, and not physical communication. It's I, I see it as steps away from being incarnate, of being yeah. material, you know, how, how many of us do all of our shopping online, like you were saying with Amazon? So you don't have to interact with real people in a store. Yeah, um, that's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> right? But at the same time, like, that's one less human interaction that, okay, maybe yep. you don't yep. have to have, but it's also one less human that you got a chance to meet and to mm-hmm. smile yeah. to. Yeah, you know, I, I noticed something this actually this morning when we were all praying together, how many people were actually using the book and how many people were using their phone? 
Oh, the vast majority were on their phones. Yeah, even the guy that was leading it was on his phone. Right. Which I'm okay with because it's useful. Um, I get really uncomfortable. Why? With that. I just think there's something there's something to the book. I think there's something to having this material thing that honestly we've got to kind of fumble with to flip through to figure out how to how to how to do it well, how to do it with a certain amount of flow that mm-hmm. leads itself to prayer. That the that the e version automatically does, so we don't have to think about it. We don't have sure. to struggle with it. Sure, sure. I'm the first one to say we need to go paperless. I hate reading regular books. They're so it's a terrible experience all on all accounts for me. But in this case you're But in this situation, yeah, you need the physical you need something there to struggle with. I think that's the I think that's the key for me. I need I need to be I need to be mindful of what I'm doing. Hmm. And I don't think you have you'd always get that in the in the e world because you can set reminders, you can set automatic updates. I can have my deodorant show up every six months, and I don't have to think about it anymore. Uh-huh. But is that something that I do have to stay mindful of? That's that's what I'm still trying to figure out. Sure, sure. Is it a is it a good thing to hate to go to the pharmacy every few months? <laughs> sure. Yeah, and I don't know. Now I will say so. Like uh, the reason I don't use usually don't use the breviary on my device the sort of office of readings and all that, uh, the prayer of the church online uh, is because I cannot distinguish the moment of prayer from just being on my device. Like the being on the device, notifications yeah. come, everything is yeah. distracting. Yeah. That's part of what I, I think what I was saying is that it's gotta be something different. Right. And that's, I mean, that's the liturgical act is something different from regular world. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I see you're that. You're entering into, so, you're entering into something different mm-hmm. fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. And if we don't if we don't keep those separations, I think that that's I think that's the struggle that you're having with virtual reality. The the worlds are starting to blend in a in an unnatural way. Right. Um what's interesting too, one of the other reasons that I don't use the breviary on my iPad or on my phone uh is because I haven't told you this yet, but I have <laughs> had some pretty serious eye strain really for the last about 2 weeks where like my eyes hurt a lot uh, because really? I spent the entire semester staring into my iPad, doing yeah. all of my reading and all of my writing on my iPad. And my eyes have been really strained yeah. because of it. So I don't know if you noticed, but my iPad right now and my phone are super yellowed out. Yeah, I noticed you're on night shift all the time. Yeah, and I'm on like extreme night shift because I really need to minimize my exposure to blue light. Hmm. Now, the, re- the reason I'm pointing this out is because... See, the, the, the move towards virtual reality or digitized reality is one that my body, literally in this case with my eyes, can't handle. Like, it can't handle it. Um, yeah. So, so think, think about Ready Player One. In that story, people are sitting down the entire time on their VR headsets and they're living in this other world. Well, they get out of that and their bodies are completely atrophied and they have to like come up with these extreme ways of like doing exercise and eating to keep their bodies from decaying because their bodies are not engaged in reality. And that's a good example of what's happening to me too. I think with my eyes is like the more I'm engaging in this world, it seems like my eyes can't keep up with the demand. Well, let me challenge you on this. Let me push back a little bit. Or my thumbs, like my fingers, you know? Yeah, what happens if you jump all in and do nothing else but train for a marathon every day for an entire semester with no break? My body would break down. 
our bodies go into shock if they're just thrown into a new situation. Uh-huh. And I'm saying this because I have been doing digital art for over 10 years, and I grew up playing game, computer games, and I've really never had any eye problem. Maybe I'm just lucky in that, but I think there is something to... Is this something that you're trained to do? Are my eyes trained to look at a screen to where I can read ebooks for hours on end? Um, maybe. And are we are we assuming that just because this is something that, you know, this technology makes life easier, then I should be able to jump in without that training, without that development, and have no ill effects? Sure. You know okay. I mean? So I'll grant you that. I guess I'm, I'm using the example of my eyes as an analogy uh, of and I'm the, not, and I'm, I'm not saying that that yeah I'm not trying to diminish the fact that you're struggling with your eyes right now, but no, I remember no, sure, going sure. to the optometrist when I was in St. Louis uh, because I was having the same problem and the guy said well you're back in school and you're reading a lot that's a lot of stress on your eyes period and I wasn't using devices at that point okay yeah so, so there... if it's a if it's a combination of not just the fact that you're looking at your iPad all day but the fact that you're doing a lot more reading than you were. Okay, yeah, and I'll, I'll concede that. I think that's. I think you are correct. Um, I do think though that my point still stands, which is that there is. Yeah, I completely agree with you. So, so my question is, how is it that a move? And I think that my eyes with a device maybe is a red herring, just because you're right. When I read books, the same stress can happen. But there is sort of a, a window here into the reality of the physical body is not as involved in the virtual world as the mind is. Yes. And yes. I think that that kind of divorce of the mind from the body is fundamentally unchristian and yep. is a fundamental attack to human flourishing because human beings are ensouled bodies or what, whatever the language is, right? We're both spirit and flesh. Yep. And insofar as those two things are separated, I think that we're moving further and further away from foundational Christian uh, anthropology, which is you know, an incarnate one. Um, and I don't yeah. know, I just have a lot of but reservations see, about this. We're falling into a trap though, that it's gotta be either this or that. Like we're not talk, we're not, we're not really even talking about how to live a balanced life. Integrated. This day and yeah. age. Yeah. uses technology and it does a lot of really good stuff. People sure. do pray. People do create. I create art on my iPad for crying out loud. Sure. You know, like I'm not willing to say that this is something that's completely useless and only leads to the degradation of the human body when you can create a lot of really good things from it. Right. But it, we need to have balance. We need to have an integrated, as you said, life. With right. It to use it rather than it using us. Look at the trajectory of our culture, though. And what would you say to that culture that is moving more and more? Into, like you, I was in the mall the other day and so they have all these kiosks everywhere where people can simulate with putting VR headsets on and playing games for hours on end. You know, this is yeah. more the norm of where gaming is going. So what would you say yeah. to that trajectory? Like, where do you see this trajectory leading us as a culture? Well, I think it's, there's, yeah, there's a real issue. And I think people are afraid, honestly, if we really look at it. You know, you talked about the disconnect between, uh, the lack of reconciliation between us and the created world. Like, we're destroying the world. And then we're building fantasy worlds to where it's not destroyed. Mm -hmm. We're not willing to to acknowledge that fact and to make to make it better and to face the reality, you know. And that's that's part of what I want to do with art is to inspire people to actually take a look at the the real beauty in the world. Sure, it can be enhanced or modified or what have you with technology. But a great example is the orcs. Bear with me here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so in the Lord of the Rings, uh, the god character 
Iluvatar created the elves and men, not dwarves. Angels, the elves, and the men were the pure creations. Anyway, this evil guy... Melkor? Took the... Yeah, Melkor. Took the goodness of creation, the elves, into the dark, into the depths, and twisted them and perverted the goodness that was there and created the orcs and the goblins and all that jazz. And so he couldn't create something like life on his own. He had to take what was ar- what already existed and twist it to his own end. Uh-huh. And that was ugly. Uh-huh. And even so the dwarves are another really good example. They're not evil, but they're still a distortion of the original goodness because they were created in secret. I think there's something there that we have to be careful, and especially as an artist, we are co-creators. We're not we're not the creator. We take the goodness of creation and sort of imbue it with our own creativity and inspiration and, and our own goodness. But it also it always has to take part full in, in sci-fi movies, you know, when we try to play God. You know, everybody dies mm-hmm. uh, because we're not God. And when we create, it's going to be less. And that's what we're seeing. But it's more sh- it's flashy. It's shiny. These are the shiny new things. And so that's the struggle that I think that we're facing with social media, with these VR games. That it right. is giving you kind of like Ready Player One. It's giving you this new giant, you know, cityscape, worldscape, but you're losing yourself in it. Right. You're becoming alienated from yourself. Yeah. Whereas good art forces you to look at yourself as you and how you relate to the rest of creation sure sure yeah and i i see that and i guess for me i would put a particular like point and finger on like the human body is kind of what's at stake here for me like the most pronounced piece of this because i I do care a lot about the environment in general And I do think that we have to spend a lot of time concerning ourselves with what we're doing to the environment. But I also think that like there's something about the alienation from the human body. So the I think there's a there's a desire to put a crowbar in between my soul and my body or my mind and my body and separate those two things out. Yeah. You know, the number of students that I have taught, you know, who struggle a lot with online pornography or struggle a lot with having confidence in relationships because they only live in online world. Uh, their body and their mind are completely separated. They don't know how to live as enfleshed beings, having moments of reconciliation with their enemies or moments of love with their friends and joy uh, yeah. in physical contact with each other in game or in you know enjoying the world. They can only really do so through a medium that is mind medium, you know, through communication yeah. of, of language or, or images. Yeah, but I mean... Barbie dolls and He-Man have been around way longer than the internet distorting body images. True, true. But so I don't there's... think we can just blame that on the internet. No, no, but all I'm saying is that there's a trajectory here that's moving in more direction where people are getting their, all of their needs met by uninfleshed yeah. reality. And I think that there's something yeah. problematic there. Um, that And that was the big criticism against Dungeons and Dragons back in the back in the seventies and eighties. That people were living in this fantasy world. Yeah. Well at least there you're doing it with real people. Yeah, I agree, but that's not the way that they saw it. Mm, yeah. Now, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't get me wrong. Like, I don't want to be the Luddite who eschews all technology. Um, I just do think that as a culture, we don't have enough warning posts up that say, you are an enfleshed being. And as an enfleshed being... Well, see, I think that's the bigger issue here, is that we don't, as a society, maybe even as a world, I'm not sure, I can't really speak for the world, we don't really do well with recognizing consequences for our actions i just want to do things that i like right and that's not good no matter if it's on the internet or not but see take go back to your amazon example so it's a silly stupid small example but 
one of the consequences of you choosing to never go to the pharmacy anymore is that you are choosing to keep yourself from engaging the outside world in a small way yeah. and seemingly insignificant way, but you're opting for convenience over inconvenience. This is you praying the breviary yep. on your phone, bro. Like you, <laughs> you don't want to be inconvenienced by leaving your house and having to see the sun and meet new people at the pharmacy. You're opting for convenience yeah. rather than incarnation. Hmm. Yeah, I have to think about that. I don't know. I'm pushing. I'm pushing to the extreme uh, on purpose, but just because I think that yeah. we're heading in a direction as a culture where we don't ask this question enough about. Yep. Maybe I should take the long way, you know, across the city to get to class rather than always taking the subway and ignoring the world, like going, yeah. you know, going down underneath and just taking the fastest route. What about wandering through the park, the city park, and going and taking a longer route? So I can see the sky. I can see the world. I can actually be a part of creation and not always yeah. just see, see creation as a thing to circumvent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a bigger, it's a bigger question. I chose to limit my trips to Walgreens, but I do make it a point to walk around. I walk to church every Sunday. Yeah. And that's good. You know? So it's like, well, yeah. And this is part of the personal, the subjective reality of the, uh, that we're living in. So, well, maybe for the person that just stays on his computer all day long should make that uncomfortable trip to Walgreens. Yeah. Cause that's maybe going to be the only human interaction, but with somebody that already interacts with a lot of people, is that going to be as big of a deal? Well, no. Sure, but also, sure. I get what you're saying. That's that's the beginning. Right. Once the rust sets in, it's a, it's a lot easier. Exactly, exactly. I think this is going to be a perennial question that we have to keep uh, reflecting upon. Is that a good stopping point? You want to go, just go into Star Wars? So let's press okay. stop. Stop.